0: Well, we continue on our study through First Peter, and we taking time to spend a few weeks in chapter Five to look at the importance of pastoral ministry within the life of the church. I trust you've been encouraged and exhorted, as you consider your own role and responsibilities in relationship to pastors, in terms of calling pastors and um, responding to pastors. So let's once again read this text together. First Peter five. We'll go through verse four. And then I'll pray. Verse one: "So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you." exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we now look to the preaching of the Word of God to hear from you. And we want to respond appropriately to that. In humility, submission, receiving your word woe with meekness and joy, knowing that your word brings life, that the gospel what, to which we hear from it all over the pages of Scripture renews us, restores us. It gives us the food we need to nourish our souls. So I pray, Lord, give us eyes of understanding, hearts that embrace the teachings found in your word, and the good news that would carry us forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To illustrate the importance of the shepherding ministry in the church, I share a story with some of the details that have been changed. It's a real-life scenario. Kathy Williams, affectionately known to many as Kate, was born on September 22, 1953. In 1986, Kathy became a member of Covenant Church on the basis of her profession of faith and remained a member until her death on July 14, 2005. The death of Kathy Williams became a watershed moment in the pastoral shepherding ministry of Covenant Church. Coming out of a rebellious and loose lifestyle, Kathy made a profession of faith and actively participated in the life of the church, but then she began to fall into her old sinful habits. She abandoned the church, and no one knew where she was, or at least no one cared to find out. Her name, however, remained on the membership rolls of the church, but just as a name. Shortly before her death, God placed Kathy back on the doorstep of Covenant Church, Pastoral interaction with the dying Kathy was too brief to confirm how she stood before God. So in a cloud of uncertainty, Kathy died and was memorialized. She will have to stand before the judgment seat to give account for her life, but before that same throne, the under-shepherds, the pastors, the elders of the flock at Covenant will have to give an account for this one lost sheep. I share that to ask us the question, how many Kathys are there in our church? What is the leadership of our church doing to care for these people? What view do our leaders hold of our identity as leaders? And therefore, what are we supposed to do in situations like this? What's our view of the nature and function of leadership in the church? Should we even be concerned with this type of thing? very common for people to bounce from church to church. Maybe that's okay with no communication nor any chasing down or reaching out from the pastors. Well, I want to submit to you this morning that it is the responsibility of elders, of leaders in the church to be shepherds. And we will get that very clearly from this text. The fundamental responsibility of church leaders is to shepherd God's flock, After all, the word pastor actually comes from the Latin word meaning shepherd. Unfortunately, this idea of leadership shepherding has lacked emphasis among many churches today, and we can be sure that this failure to shepherd has many unfortunate and difficult symptoms that really hinder the effectiveness and health of the church. What does Jesus say about those without a shepherd. In Matthew 9, he walks through the cities and villages of Galilee, and he says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited or discouraged, like sheep without a shepherd. These words would very well describe many people that attend church regularly. Aimless, lost, discouraged, malnourished, anemic, What does that look like practically in their life? Making poor decisions, secret sins, floundering families, aimless singles, church hoppers, biblically illiterate, ineffective witness, spiritually anemic, non-discerning. Failure to shepherd the body of Christ has enormous impacts on the health of the church. Of course, this leads to a greater, bigger problem that we see so common, is that mega churches, or, you know, the popular new churches or something are growing in number as people are bouncing from church to church, disaffected, discouraged, not knowing what to do. And although those churches are growing in number, overall church membership, you might say, are lowering in the body of Christ. It's not like more people are being saved. They're just leaving other churches and finding something else to blend in. There's a big problem. I'm not against megachurches per se, but this is a very common thing. People go to those churches and just blend in. What do they actually need? What do we need? It is a recovery of the ministry of elders, shepherds of the flock, who care for, love, feed, nourish, and lead the sheep. So last week... Just to catch us up, I was looking at the fundamental responsibility, the intrinsic responsibility of elders, and I was only able to introduce the concept. We looked at the domain of the elder, and that is from these verses where it says, shepherd the flock, God's flock among you. And So that is the responsibility of the pastor, to know who is God's flock among them, To recognize that it is God's flock, not ours. It's precious to him, so we need to be careful and steward it well. But also that it is among us, so we should know who the sheep are, individually and corporate. Which sets us up then for the fundamental duty. The overall arching duty or command from this passage is in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. So we're going to take time this morning to slow down, think about this a little bit. What does it mean to shepherd? It's very clear in the minds of these people when you think of the imagery of shepherd. Us, not so much. Some of us might be thinking, okay, shepherd. Yeah, David was the shepherd. Uh, Psalm 23, uh, the, the uh, shepherds at Jesus' birth, that's, that's as far as it goes. But something else is going on here. Uh, that they would know very well, but I want to take time to really bring it out. What does he mean by shepherd? Shepherd through oversight. You might say I just put those together. They're not separate. It's shepherd exercising oversight. Shepherding is the the figurative way of speaking. Shepherd oversight. Exercising oversight is the literal way. Watching over, managing, stewarding. Shepherd. Exercising oversight. So when they hear this, shepherd, what are they thinking of? Because Peter doesn't take time to explain it, does he? He just says, shepherd them. Well, that's a verb form of a figurative concept, shepherd. So what are they thinking of? Well, in this case, this was an agrarian society. So They either knew a shepherd or were shepherds themselves because that was the norm. And so they have this imagery in their head. But then they're also, they knew their Old Testaments. Peter oftentimes quotes from the Old Testament in this letter, doesn't he? And he just assumes they would pick up the imagery from the Old Testament. It's no different here. For instance, in the Old Testament, what do we find? Duties and roles of shepherds. Proverbs 27, 23, the shepherd knows his flock. Isaiah 40, 11, the shepherd carries the sheeps in his arms. Amos 3, 12, shepherds will rescue or save the sheep from danger. And then Ezekiel 34, 12, shepherds seek out the lost sheep, feeds the sheep. They have this understanding in their mind. They should know their sheep, lead the sheep, care for the sheep, protect the sheep so as Peter exhorts the elders, they would be thinking of these concepts. But that's not all they would be thinking. They also knew from the Old Testament, there are some poor examples of shepherds. That when you read through, there are some extreme chastisement going on towards the shepherds. Think of Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You've scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then Ezekiel 34, this great passage that teaches about shepherding. He says, Therefore, you as shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherds, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds feed themselves, did not feed my flock. Verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. So they have the example of literal shepherds that they would know about. And they'd be like, okay, the, the, the elders there would be like, okay, I get, I get what it means to shepherd. They would have the example from the Old Testament of David and these descriptions of shepherding. They'd have the bad examples to, to look at and say, okay, I'm not going to be like that. But I will submit to you today that the most important example for them or the one whom they are going to draw as how to shepherd would be from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse chapter 2, we look to verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is this language just like coming out of nowhere that Jesus is the good shepherd? No. The Old Testament prophesies constantly that the the Messiah to come would be the true and good shepherd of his people. Thinking of his birth, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Ruler of Israel has shepherd imagery in it. And then it goes on to say, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name. Isaiah 40.11, speaking of the Messiah, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs with his arms and carry them in the bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Ezekiel, that same passage in chapter 34 speaks of the shepherd and ruler to come of his people. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. What? David? That's interesting. Oh yeah, the Messiah to come is going to be the son of David. And he would feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. But there's a twist about this shepherding language, about the coming Messiah. In Zechariah, concerning this Messiah's death. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, who is the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and then I will turn my hand against them. We know that imagery is picked up in the New Testament, prophesying of Christ's death. So in his birth, in his life, in his death, he is the shepherd that was to come. And these are just a few of the images of the Old Testament of shepherds. And so, when John chapter 10, when we studied that a few months back, he comes on the scene and says, I am the good shepherd. I hope you realize he's not pulling that out of anywhere. He is making a messianic title for himself. I'm the shepherd. You should see in me the promised one. And so then he says, I am the good shepherd, and he contrasts himself with what? What? the teachers and rulers of Israel at the time, he says, you all are like hirelings, not caring for the sheep at all. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And when we see that, I lay down my life language, it's not just saying I'll give of myself, protect the sheep to the end. It also has more to its meaning. I lay down my life for the sheep. And through that, I'm going to actually Draw all the scattered sheep from all over so there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Through his death, he will bring this out. So, from that, I just want to say this Messiah imagery of the shepherd comes as the ruler and true chief shepherd, but I don't want to leave out the fact that he also died. And so if you're visiting with us today or you're unfamiliar with the story of Scripture, I want you to see that the true chief shepherd was also the lamb. If you're confused by that, you need to read the Old Testament and see that God put this, this great story in pictures and symbols of the great fulfillment of the story to come. So that lambs, sheeps were sacrificed Where the blood of the sheep were thrown on a mercy seat, signifying that only blood can bring about atonement or propitiation. The lamb or goat was sacrificed in the place of the person who offered it. And so that's why we read in Isaiah chapter 53 that all us, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us turning to our own way. In other words, we're all sinners. But it says the Lord laid upon him the servant, the iniquity of us all. And so when Jesus is led to death, to slaughter, it says he did not have any resistance at all because he was the Messiah, the true shepherd of the sheep who was going to lay down his life for the sheep. And that is the only way you can be saved. So. We're not surprised that in First Peter chapter two it says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is first Peter two. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trusting to himself, who judges justly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And what was the purpose or aim? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your soul. So I will say to you today, as I'm going to be talking about pastors and shepherds, if you have not first gone to the chief shepherd, return to him through his sacrifice, you must begin there. Do you know you are a sinner? Do you know you're guilty before God? A cursory reading of the Ten Commandments should be able to paint you in the corner. And we'd be fine if the judge to whom we are accountable for was not holy, was not perfect in every way, did not know everything, maybe took bribes, but this one doesn't. God is perfect in every way. So because you've sinned, you will stand before this chief shepherd and he will judge you. But today he calls to you as Savior. He says, turn to me, return to me. I've given my life for the sheep. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but has eternal life. So we begin there with the chief shepherd. But what is the point? Is What I'm trying to say is Christ is the example of the shepherds. Who should they be looking to? In their thinking of how to shepherd, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say? What did he do? He came to his disciples. He lived among them. He knew them as a shepherd, knows his sheep. He taught them. He sought them. He was tolerant with them. He loved them. He washed their feet. He laid down his life for them. He rose and ascended and always lives to make intercession for them and has promised to return for them. That's the point. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he serves as the example for all pastors, elder seers, overseers to follow. And so now let's slow down for a minute and talk about what are the functions of a shepherd. You've been able to draw some of those already as we've looked at the Old Testament. What are they? There's four primary functions that make up this shepherding. Feed, protect, lead, and care. Feed, protect, lead, and care. So let's look first at feeding. If we're to shepherd well, we need to feed the flock. Psalm 23 might come to mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. What is that? He's taking the sheep to where they might find nourishment. Green grass, water that they can drink Ezekiel 34, this is their task, wasn't it not? Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, say to them, even to the shepherds. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. God indicts them for not feeding You might also think of John 21 with Peter's commissioning. What was Jesus saying to him? He says it twice. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And so we're asking, what does it mean to feed? That's confusing. Or is it? Under the new covenant, God makes it very clear what these new shepherds, these overseers, are supposed to be feeding their people He says in Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The pure teaching and preaching of God's word. Notice how Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he sees that these people are without a shepherd. Mark 6, when he went ashore, saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does he do? He began to teach them many things. In Matthew chapter 9. Similarly, he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed, helpless, distressed, discouraged, like sheep without a shepherd. And what does he say? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Pray for this, that they would have more and more shepherds. And what does he do? He sends out people to then preach. The food by which the sheep are fed is the word of God. Not sentimental stories or pop psychology or a few verses from the Bible or personal experiences, stories that might get a rise. Sheep are fed by substantive teaching from the word of God. How are we to know that elders are to be those who preach and teach? How do we know that this is what's implied by shepherding? We've looked at Old Testament usage. We looked at Christ. But specifically in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, it reads this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Elders, preaching, preaching and teaching. And so it's no surprise that Paul exhorts Timothy in second Timothy four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, sorry, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is the emphasis. God is going to bless His people with shepherds who are going to give them understanding from His Word. That is what we are to be doing. Now, there's so many different styles of preaching. You go to this church, you go to that church, and there's all sorts of different things going on. Is there anything that would lead us in the Bible to say, this is good preaching or this is faithful preaching and this is like, that's not what we should be having a steady diet of? I hope you you think about that a little bit. You could go to 10 different churches in Omaha and have people coming up here doing all sorts of different things. Is there any objective standard that we should look to? And the answer to that is yes. What is preaching itself? It is heralding, proclaiming, announcing, teaching the good news. What are the New Testament examples of it? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, you see them grabbing Old Testament texts of Scripture, explaining them, showing them how they point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's exhortation that people might respond appropriately. So you could boil preaching down to explanation and exhortation. Explaining God's Word, which must be. He says, preach God's Word. Explain it in its context with its correct emphasis, what what the author is trying to emphasize. Connect it to Christ and then exhort the people how to respond. So if you don't, cherry-pick verses out of here and there if you put them in their context, or if you don't just start a sermon with one verse and then move on, the preaching that's faithful should have a certain flavor to it. A flavor that is identifiable. So I'm not trying to say that if you go to a church that doesn't preach exactly the way we do it, that's unfaithful. But let me just give you a few of these flavors The flavor of it should be that God is glorified in it. Not that the preaching itself glorifies God, because that is true, but that God is the focus. This is God's Word, and it's not just a book of practical applications, although it is that. It is a story of God exalting Himself through the saving of a people. He's the focus, and so we should always be saying, what does this teach us about God? That should be an identifiable flavor. Second, because all the scriptures are somehow in relation to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus talks about when he says, You searched the scriptures, thought you'd find eternal life, but they were pointing and speaking of me. And then in Luke 24, he explained to them all the scriptures related to himself in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So it should be Christ-centered. It should be gospel-focused as well, because the point of the Scripture has a redemptive flavor to it. You should not go throughout these messages without speaking of the salvation that is on every page. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, Of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. I remind you of the gospel of first importance by which you are being saved. So we need to be feasting upon the unsearchable riches of Christ, the new wine of salvation, and the juicy meat of the glory of Christ. And then it should also be transformation-aimed. It's God-exalting. It's Christ-centered. It's filled with gospel, but it's also pushing you towards transformation. By beholding God and His gospel, we are being transformed into His image. And so that's not a, a passive thing where we are just like, okay, I just have to hear and not change, not repent, not do anything. We're pushing and exhorting you to respond By laying aside sin, ridding yourself of false ideologies or cultural perceptions, having your mind renewed so that you might follow after Christ. And that's why he says in the Great Commission, Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what does this look like in preaching? It is taking Scripture... That means the Word of God is its basis, explaining it, pulling out, showing God, showing how it connects to Christ, preaching the gospel, and then pushing towards transformation. And Nehemiah 8:8 8, 8 is a great example of this. They read from the book clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And of course they responded with weeping and tears because of what they have been missing out on. So the preaching is how we feed the people of God, but also teaching. And so that might take the form of Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We have formal and informal ways of teaching. Formally, we have this gathering where we go through a liturgy. We have other pastors involved with that. We have lectures taking place at 9 o'clock, counseling. We have leadership development in accordance with 2 Timothy 2.2 entrusting faithful men to teach others. We have the informal work of mentoring, teaching in gospel communities, and hospitality. So the feeding of the flock is a key component of shepherding the flock well. Now, I will say this as means of application. We can present, we can lead you to the grass or the still waters. We cannot chew it up and eat it for you and digest it. Obviously, that's the work of God, but also you are active in that. That means you must place yourself underneath the teaching and preaching of God's Word. You must prioritize it. Second, you have to take and eat it. Really, you do. You have to seek out to apply it. To take what we're teaching and to to then think upon it, meditate upon it. Take notes or, or pray about it so that you say, man, I want to be different. I'm going to take this, this great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and this call to walk in a manner worthy of it and actually apply it. Now, I will say this. We are in an age where, thankfully, we do have access to all sorts of resources available. Some of the greatest Pastors, preachers in the world, you can find their sermons, and that's a great thing. But there is a temptation to say, you know, I don't really have to pay attention to the sermon on Sunday, or I don't have to go to Ron's class or Sunday evening preaching or or be involved in gospel communities or anything, because I plan on listening to the Mount Rushmore of Reformed preaching this week. John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, I'm going to catch some of their sermons. And I just, I don't want to discourage you from doing that, but I want to direct you towards the, the way God has designed it, which is you have particular shepherds. So supplement our teaching with those guys, but don't take that as like, I don't really need the pastors, they're not that important to because I've got these guys. Those guys don't know you. You don't know their lives. You can be listening to these sermons of pastors who are out there today, and yet they're disqualified, You know, they're not even like preaching anymore, but you can find their tapes. So, supplement is the key. I'm not discouraging you for any of that. But let us shepherd you. Let us feed you. Place yourself underneath the preaching of God's word from your pastors. But that's not all we're called to do. Feed the sheep. We're also called to protect. Protect the sheep from those who would harm them. This is beautifully illustrated in 1 Samuel 17. You all know the story. I got the kids' attention when it comes to David and Goliath. David was a young man at that time. And you remember what David says when he comes on the scene. Remember, Goliath is taunting the people of God and saying, Who will come and fight me? I'll kill anybody. And David comes and says, Who is this guy? You got all the people of Israel trembling in their boots. And he's like, Who is this guy? actually cussing out our God? Are you serious? The true and living God, and you guys are over here trembling in your boots? What is going on here? And the people say, David, you're just some ordinary guy. You've got all these dreams of greatness and all that. You're nothing. You can't go and fight this guy because what? He's been a warrior from his youth, and you are just a youth. Listen to David's response in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 35. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He was a shepherd. And what happened? When there came a lion or a bear, took a lamb from the flock, a lamb that is the most vulnerable, weak, fresh out of the mother's womb, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, this beast would, you know, see David, maybe, drop the lamb, be like, I'm going to have a five-course meal instead of this little lamb. I'm about to eat David up. Except David says, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. What's the point? The point is, when David saw a predatory animal going after one of his lambs, he reacted immediately. And he would say, look here, bear or lion? In just a few moments, there's either going to be a dead bear or a dead lion or a dead shepherd. But as long as I still have breath, there will be no dead lamb. Dead predator, dead shepherd, but as long as I'm living, there will not be a dead lamb. And that is the response, the inherent response of a shepherd. He loves the sheep. He knows the sheep. He'll do anything to protect them. And so Jesus, in John 10, what does he say? The hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. By contrast, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Unless we think I'm pushing this too much as to say this is the role of the shepherd to protect, this is exactly what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty, seventeen. In verse 17 he sends for the elders of Ephesus to come to him in verse twenty-eight. He turns to them, exhorts them, just like he does in five, in chapter 5, verse 2, in 1 Peter. And he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now notice, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men sparing seeking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be on guard. Watch. This is a true shepherd. He knows this is a reality, that there are wolves seeking to make disciples after their own selves to the destruction and harm of the sheep. So what do we do as shepherds? How are we supposed to do this? We do it in two ways, proactively and reactively. Proactively, teaching sound doctrine so that you be equipped to be able to discern who is the wolf out there, who is the false teacher. And then we do this also by watching and checking in regularly with you all, seeing how you're doing, what are you reading, what are you learning, who are you watching. And then reactively, we rebuke false teachers. Titus 1 verse 9. Instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And then we also lead in discipline as pastors, both in the uh, person sinning, so we might lead in that, that this is unhelpful for our whole church, but then also for that person himself. We go after them so that they might not fall away. So we feed, we protect, and then third, we lead. Psalm seventy-eight fifty-two: He led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He guides them, he leads them. This is God. He's the ultimate example. There's a story told about a group of tourists in Israel who had been informed by their Israel tour guide. After observing a flock and their shepherd that shepherds always lead their flocks from the front. They're always out in front leading the sheep. And so they're driving along, and the people look out, and what do they see but a group of sheep? And then someone behind them looks like a shepherd. They say, what's up with this? You told us a shepherd always leads from the front. So the tour guide gets out of the bus, goes and talks with the guy, comes back into the bus and says, kind of with a smile on his face, yeah, that's not the shepherd, that's the butcher. The, po- the point is, is this is how shepherds lead the flock, is by the front. And so they lead in direction, in decisions, and in example. 1 Timothy 5, Let the elders who rule well, that is lead well, no doubt that we are called to lead. Hebrews thirteen seven, Remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will give an account. How do we lead? Well, it's by giving direction to the church. What should we be thinking of? Where should we be going? Where should we be heading? We give counsel in those matters. We make decisions certain times. We lead by being those who are thinking, processing and having to make difficult decisions for our church. And we lead by example. This is found here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is why there's such a great emphasis in the Bible on the qualifications of a pastor. Is because you are to be following us we are to be examples to you. And that's why Paul charges these pastors so often. Be on guard for yourself. Watch yourself, your doctrine, and your life. Because we are to serve as those who are worthy to be followed. First Timothy 4.12. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Thessalonians one. Verse 5 and 6, you know how we lived among you for your sake. And then he speaks of them becoming imitators of us and of the Lord. As elders, we are to model holiness in lifestyle, gentleness in speech, selflessness in relationships, soundness in doctrine, and loving concern for other members of the church. You should be able to look at our lives and say, wow, if I follow them... I should in some way, shape, or form actually be looking like a Christian. Are we perfect? No. Not at all. So you are called to be discerning. Take the good, leave out the bad, but over time our church, if our pastors are faithful, should reflect godliness. If instead... Pastors are going astray, their priorities are off, they're worldly. Our church will actually start to look like that. This was God's design. Your leaders, how we teach, preach, our tone, how we interact with one another, should be shaping you. So the question I have for you this morning, a few of them. Are you open to being led Is everything we bring forward to you and say, hey, this is important, or we want to go this direction, is it automatically met with opposition? Is there a quick doubt that we know anything or that we're making the right decision? Or are you coming to the place of saying, well, this is God's design, he's put pastors over me, these men are qualified, I need to be led by them. Are you watching us, our lives? Are you thinking to yourself, why do they do that? Why do they prioritize that in their lives? Why is their family set up with that? Why does he have these habits, these things? And you're trying to wonder and figure these things out because we're examples. This is important. Being led takes humility. It is an acknowledgement that... God thinks I need people in my life over me. And the the sooner you can grab a hold of that, the more healthy this relationship will be. Yes, we need to earn your trust by being faithful, but you also have to give us your trust. There's a little bit of give and take there so that you could follow us. So, we not only feed, we not only protect, we not only lead, but we also then, fourthly, care. Care. And this is just a catch all for some of those other things that the scriptures teach, like prayer. We're to be praying for the sheep. In Acts chapter 6, Paul says it's not right that we would leave off the ministry of word and prayer to serve tables. So, we see it's our task to be in prayer, praying for members. Visiting the sick. James 5, verse 14 says to call upon the elders. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We're to be counseling the church as well, meeting with you individually, trying to, help you in certain sin patterns and troubles that you're facing. We're to organize deacons to meet physical needs in the church. That is one thing we're constantly doing, is working in tandem with the deacons and trying to get more and more people so that we're overseeing the church by physical needs being met while we focus in on the Word and prayer. These things are very important important for your life. If you take anything away from this this morning, okay, is this. This is something that could be humbling to you if you embrace it. You need faithful shepherds. I'm speaking of myself as well. I need faithful shepherds. You need faithful shepherds. That sounds a bit self-serving, since I am a shepherd. But that's not my opinion. That's God's word. It's God's design according to his word. That you need for your ongoing health and protection and growth and maturity, faithful shepherds ministering in your life. Which then is just part of the local church. So you need the local church. I hope you see the value and importance of this community of believers that God has built, that you're a part of. You have shepherds who are laboring among you, feeding you, leading, protecting, caring for your souls. You need this. Learn from them. Follow them. Open up to them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Love them. And be thankful to God for them. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this text. I feel so much significance uh, in the, the role of a shepherd and that I have the privilege to be in that along with my brothers here. I pray everybody would be thankful to you as well. Not because we're awesome in any way, but because this is the design for your ongoing care of the church. Christ, you're the chief shepherd. It's humbling to think that you would entrust the care of your sheep to faithful elders. I pray that would be us for years to come. That this church would grow in their understanding of the importance of pastors, that so they might hold us accountable, but that also that they might receive the nourishing food, the protection, the care, the love, and the leadership that you have designed for it. So I pray, Lord, keep us faithful as men of God, humble, repentant, always seeking to learn from the Good Shepherd. We pray as we now respond to you with song, that we'd be not only hearers of the word, doers of the word, we'd worship you now through song, but also with our very lives as we live in and amongst this community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.